This is Tell Me What To Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasilia, and this week ahead of International Women's Day, we'll be bringing several interviews covering newly released books that focus on the world of women and the challenges they face today. First up in this series, Ben sits down with Mandy Beaumont, author of the incredible new novel, The Furies, which explores the isolation felt by so many women and how powerful they can be when they join together. Then, Stefania sits down with political reporter for The Guardian, Amy Remekis, author of the searing new book, On Reckoning, which covers Amy's personal and professional rage following the incredible revelations of sexual assault taking place inside Parliament House in Canberra. Check the show notes below for timestamps for all interviews, as well as links to all books mentioned. Both books discuss topics of mental health, abuse, and adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Now over to Ben's interview with Mandy Beaumont, author of The Furies. Hi, I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager, and joining me from Melbourne over Zoom is Mandy Beaumont. She's an award-winning author and academic. Her debut story collection, Wild Fearless Chests, was published in 2020, and her debut novel has just been published. It's called The Furies, and it is one of the best books I've read this year. It is one of the best books I've read. It's incredible. Mandy, thanks for joining me. What an introduction. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. Um, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat about this. Uh, It's a hell of a book. Uh, It's just gone through me like a lightning bolt. Um, I, I thought I'd ask about adjectives on book covers. Uh, it's, it's a way that uh, publishers kind of have a, a fast lane into the hearts and minds of readers. And yeah. uh, uh, you, know, you usually pick up a book and you look at the cover and it'll say something like warm, witty and wise or <laughs> uh, enchanting and lyrical or fast paced and tense for a thriller. But I picked up yours and, and the, the publishers written on here, defiant, ferocious and unyielding. Now, I'd, I'd agree with that, but um, I wondered what, what adjectives would you use to describe the Furies and, um, and why? Look, I think it's a, I think, powerful, definitely, um, kind, and I think also, um, gosh, uh, wanting more. I know, I know that's two words, but like I think it's got, it's powerful, but it's kind at its heart, and it's, it's about a woman wanting more than her lot so that's kind of and divine and ferocious and unyielding they're, they're spot on yeah kindness that's um kindness you wouldn't you wouldn't pick that up from the the description and the the, the cover of this this book it is it is um it is about you know the, the strap line says a woman can be lost in so many ways mm-hmm. uh but there is there is kindness in your writing you are you are coming from a place of kindness, aren't you? I, I felt that through yeah. the, the power, if you will. Yeah, it's really, I come from a really ethical place in my writing and I think that kindness drives or should drive humanity. So it was kind of that I wanted, to, it is, it's, it's very, it's violent, it's sexual, it's got all of those, which, you know, I, I've heard people go, oh, my God, it's so full on. And yes, it is, but it's... Um, the language I soften and make it poetic and give it that kindness is is what drives it 
I don't know if that makes sense. It does. It, it certainly does reading the thing. Uh, so tell me, how did the story of Cynthia and Mal Mallory come to you? Um, what, um, where were you coming from when you created this thing? <laughs> well, look, I wanted to um, write a story set. I, I wanted to use landscape as a real driver um, of story, which I know a lot of Australian writers do because we're, we're, we're amongst it, we're scared of it, but we adore it, right? Um, but I also wanted to write a story of women and the way that we often feel so um, misplaced and out of humanity. Um, and I'm doing a PhD in Simone du Beauvoir who talks about all these things. So I was really influenced by her philosophy and the way that she writes fiction. Um, but I also wanted to write a story with a strong and powerful female protagonist who kicks ass, who has this situation where she's stuck in this violent, you know, male-centred world, um, but she has she revolts, she resists, like all of resistance and revolt. I wanted a woman to be that. And that's Cynthia in the book. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, and and that that violent and male-centered world is in Queensland. It's cattle country and a, a lot of this novel takes place in an abattoir of all places. Uh, you know, in a world of, of what what some of the men, they, they call it, it's men's work. And Cynthia is, is, is punished by these men for entering their world in, in, their, in their eyes. That's, that's how they frame it. Uh, what, what is your experience of, of cattle country and of abattoirs? <laughs> I got asked this question yesterday. We just into Parsons on the ABC, um, and my my answer is that um, I've never worked in an abattoir. I've worked in a fish board, so kind of similar. Um, gutting mullet in my day, so that was quite strange. Name, um, but I'm working class, and I really wanted to have working class voices in fiction because I don't see it. I haven't seen it. I was growing up on a diet of American male 1960s kind of writers and I still adore them like, you know, um, Henry Miller and Bukowski and all these great strong male writers. But I didn't see any, I mean, there are, you've got something like Emily Maguire writes really well in Working Class Australia, but I wanted to write Working Class. And so that to me is that abattoir, really physical labour. Um, and also I wanted to write about the landscapes that I know. And I grew up in Queensland, so I know those landscapes and how harsh they can be, but how beautiful they can be. So I really wanted to use the beautiful and the harsh throughout to make that power, like that was the tipping point. That's great. That's that, that kind of brings me to something else I wanted to ask about, which is landscape and setting um, and how, how, we, how we attribute male violence to that. Um, there's, there's a rhetoric that, that I'm not sure how, I, how to sit with that, that, that kind of says people living in a landscape that is a landscape of de desperation, 
and of brutality and of violence, which if you work, you know, work on cattle stations in the far west, um, uh, where the, the land has been really just damaged by Western farming for 200 years, that, that poverty and that desperation is, is baked into the psyche and brutality and violence is born of that. But then how, how do you answer then for stories that come out of parliamentarians or, or game show hosts, uh, men uh, in posh cars and suits that also do this kind of behavior? Uh, how, how, do you, how do you sit with that rhetoric of, of landscape and violence? Look, I wanted to, look, let's be frank, that violence is endemic. It's across society. It's in our structures. It's in our parliaments. It's in, we are not, like, it, sexism and uh, um, misogyny is not about you individually. It's about the structures that we sit in and have been perpetuated and built over the years. So um, I wanted to use landscape as a metaphor behind it. So to sit in those landscapes, and it is that harshness. And in Australia, and in Queensland particularly, and coming from Queensland, I grew up there, it's like, we know that there's that harshness, we know that there's that violence. Um, and I just simply wanted to use it as a metaphor. And it's those like working class, socioeconomic, all those kind of things build in together. And they are in those stories that we hear of violence, they exist. Um, so it was a really powerful way for me to do it. I also want to ask about uh, Sylvia Platt. It seems oh. to be uh, uh, just a, a big part of this work, uh, particularly the poem Lady Lazarus. When, when I opened the book, uh, the epigram uh, is uh, out of the ash. I will rise with my red hair and I eat men like air. Uh, what is your relationship with Platt's work and, and who else do you like to read? Oh, plus that poem, I gotta say, for your listeners, please just go and read Lady Lazarus. It's just full of power and defiance. And that quote to me is the epitome of the book. I mean, Cynthia Mang, the main character, has red hair. Like it's all of these wonderful, and that influenced why she had red hair, all those kind of things. And like just that influence that, that we eat men like air, it's such a powerful thing. So um and who else I like to read? Oh, my God, I'm, so many books. Um, I think influences on this book were Angie McGann, um, arguably Australia's finest ever writer. Um, and he, probably his book, Praise, which really, he said it in Brisbane, and I'm sure a lot of you, everyone will know that book. And he really described to me the way that it was okay to write place and about the place you come from, which was for me that gritty working class Brisbane in the 90s. Um, and also his last book, A Rich Man's House, which he really used nature in, in the beautiful way. Um, I also love Cormac McCarthy. Um, who else? Oh my God, there's so many. Um, uh, Bukowski, like I said before, a wildly misogynist writer. Yeah. Um, but also so much beauty in his writing so that was a real influence on the way that you can write misogyny and brutality up against softness 
who else do I love? I've packed my bookcase away, so I'm kind of moving out. So I'm kind of, usually I can look at my books. Um, Those are some interesting influences, though. The back of the book um, uh, mentions Charlotte Wood and, and the natural way of things was definitely in the front of my mind when I was reading at least parts of this, um, the way you talk about landscape and um, women uh, rebelling <laughs> against the man's world, the man, the male dominance of it, the patriarchy. That that was front of my mind as well. Um, but yeah, those are some brilliant influences. And I can see the um, I can see the uh, connection to Charlotte Woods, the natural way of things. Definitely, a lot of people have said it to me um, because of what you've just said. But what I was most excited about in the natural way of things, which I really influenced the book, was the idea and the ending of that book, the ambiguity that sat at what do you think happened yes. in the book? And so that's like the idea of ambiguity is so important to my work because we don't live in a black and white world and all these issues are ambiguous. And you've got books like uh, American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis, which is really formative for me. Um, and, you know, was he a serial killer? Was he not? Uh, you know, the ending of The Sopranos. Did Tony get killed? Did he not? I just think there's so much power in knowing, not knowing what the ending is. And a lot of people have come to me about the Furies and said, oh, I got this from it, I got that from it, I got this from it, I got that from it. What Have I got it right? And I'm like, it's not what I've given you the work. It's out in the world. I've done my work, man. So you go and tell me what you think the book's about. The book is about a conversation starter, a you know, like, why are we talking? Because it got you thinking about stuff and you went, oh, shit, oh, I'm comfortable, whatever I am. But that's the whole idea about ambiguous living is that there's so many ways in and around these ideas, which is so exciting to do in fiction, hey? Oh, yeah. And I, I, I'm also, um, it, it also makes sense to me, the, the Bukowski thing and, and, and obviously Sylvia Plath, that poetics, there's, there's a, there's a, rhythm, there's a musicality uh, to your work, then that's, it, it, it also, there's, there's breaks and the, there's page breaks, there's, there's um, yeah, there's something, I guess you could say disjointed about it. Um, it if you when, you, when a reader gets this book off the shelf, it's not going to read in the same way that 90% of the other narratives on the shelf in that bookshop. Will and I also know that you know, you've 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 written a number of short stories. How do you engage with the the form of the novel, and um, uh, how how do you diverge from it, and why do you choose to diverge from it? Um, so the way that I use language in this book, and the way that I use language in my writing and my fiction is that I do do a lot of staccato, a lot of stop-start, a lot of, like you said, a lot of breaks. Um, and the reason I do that for the poetics of it is that I want the author to have a, uh, the reader to have a breath. I want you to stop. I want you to, you know, move from it and get into the rhythm of the language. And I know that when you first read The Furies, it is a bit arresting. You know, like when you first, when I first read Clockwork Orange, I was like, what the hell? Like, or train spotting. I was like, what? what's this language? I don't get it. 
And then you move and then you read a chapter and you go, oh, shit, okay, great. I'm into the rhythm of it. It makes sense, this style. Um, so that's why I write like that. And I want a rhythm in my writing because when I write, it's a really physical thing in me and I do have a rhythm in my body when I write. And, you know, everyone has a rhythm, right? They have a rhythm and a vibe to their living. And I wanted to put that in the book. So when I, and look, honestly, I started as a poet uh, millions of years ago. I love poetry is my first love. So it was very natural. It's very natural for me to write like this. That, I, that idea of, of you, know, you mentioned Clockwork Orange and train spotting, you know, when, when you finally start to gel with what the author is doing on the page, uh, it's, it's just electrifying. Uh, it's such a good feeling for a reader. And I, um, yeah, I'm on board with that. I, I think that's, that's great. This is a narrative of uh, one lone woman uh, who is traumatised and completely isolated in her setting. But right from the start, you begin to establish this kind of collective voice, if you will, of other women who have suffered violence and reproach or repression, you also will reach out to the reader and you draw them in quite directly. And this kind of becomes a story for all women. What, what do you want to achieve with this novel? Yeah, sure. Great question. Um, I do, so it is told from a first-person po point of view and I wanted to talk from a woman's lived experience through a woman's lens, through a working-class woman's lens. It was so important to me um, because, you know, the canon is male and, you know, part of my literary practice is to push back against that kind of malarkey. I wanted to push the idea of both collective care for each other, which is the kindness stuff, and also collective resistance. The idea that together, like the uh, Sylvia Plath quote, um, together, women coming together, there's power in the collective. So I spent 20 years working for unions and understand the power of collectivism. Um, and I think the only way to kick, about, kick back against structures that repress people is through collective power. So that's what I wanted to kick in. And also that direct breaking the fourth wall, talking to the reader, was also a welcoming to other people to join that. So in my first collection, Wild Fearless Chess, um, there's a quote at the front from Simone de Beauvoir that says, um, uh, oh, God, I can't even remember it, but... Um, something about what should we tell our younger sisters and which direction should we point them. So that really drives my thinking around, come on in, be with us, we'll care for you, and let's resist together. Let's do this. I've got your back. Earlier this month, uh, Brittany Higgins, uh, she stood on the, the platform in the press gallery, the Canberra Press Club, and she was on the same microphone where the Prime Minister had been just like days before taking questions. 
and she said, I didn't want his sympathy as a father. I wanted him to use his power as a prime minister. When I read the last few pages of this book, which they do reach directly to the reader, that 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 just went through me like a lightning bolt. It was like explosion of sound and illumination, and it was scorching hot. Uh, what does your book ask of male readers? Yeah, I'm so glad that last bit resonated for you. Um, I think it's very much, it's not, my politics and my feminism um, isn't about destroying men. Um, my politics and my feminism is about resistance and is about together, all of us coming together, which was also Simone de Beauvoir's, um, who I'm doing my PhD, was her um, practice in the second sex. The idea that I wanted to say to men, take a bloody good look at yourself. Take a look at yourself, check your privilege, check your position. If you haven't, and, you know, I say in the end of it, look in the mirror, listen to our stories. You know what I mean? Like it's that real like call to arms from women, but also call to arms, like call to men to say, come on, show us, show us that you're the good men. There's a lot of, you know, like with Scott Morrison getting up and doing his dad bloody vibe that he does like I don't want to hear that stuff anymore I don't want to hear the bloke at the pub go oh but I'm a good bloke well not all men or blah 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 I don't want to hear it anymore show me through your actions and for someone in politics like Scott Morrison with an immense amount of power show us in your policies in your voting on the floor in parliament show us that stuff because at the moment you're not so without action there's nothing too right Manny Beaumont, uh, what will you be doing next? Will you, will you write some more novels? What will you do next? Well, I'm currently packing my house up, so I'm moving house. <laughs> I might have a beer after that. Um, but I am um, finishing my PhD, so that'll be finished at the end of the year. Um, and I've got a new book in the works um, called The Gardens, um, and I'm really interested from the last couple of years that we've been in such isolation and we're so disconnected at the moment, I'm really interested um, in lockdown. I had um, some pretty horrendous stuff happen in my family. Like my nephew was killed and my dog died and it was just a whole lot of crap really. Um, and I went deep down into cults and neuro-linguistic programming. So it was kind of like that NLP, the way people think and manipulate those who are in positions of, um, who are not powerful. So I'd love to write for that. I, lo I love that idea. That sounds very interesting. I will be following you wherever you go now. This, this book, as I said, The Furies is, is brilliant. It is really special and I, really encourage people to yeah challenge themselves it's not warm and witty and pretty uh but it is a brilliant book which has moved me it is a really special thing and yeah you should you should read it uh Andy Beaumont thank you for taking some time out and talking with me today good luck moving your house oh Ed thank you for your kind words it's been awesome thank you you can get a copy of the Furies right now from booktopia.com.au
Now over to Stefania's interview with Amy Ramekis, author of On Reckoning. Hi, Amy. Um, welcome to the Booktopia, our, our Booktopia podcast. Um, today we're talking about your book On Reckoning. So this this title, On Reckoning, can you tell us what the word means and why I've been hearing it so often being referred to, especially in relation to this particular topic of violence against women in Australia? Mm. It. Uh, I think that when we... We in the parliament, uh, I'm a, a press gallery reporter, I work in the federal parliament covering federal politics. When we were watching the last year unfurl when it came to how our leaders were handling issues of sexual violence, you know, uh, just issues of abuse against women, bullying, harassment, all of it. There was just such a disconnect between what was happening in the parliament and what was happening on the ground, that the politicians couldn't really get their head around it. And they seemed completely bamboozled and it really became a reckoning. Uh, and a reckoning in the sense of it was time to deal with all of these issues that Australian society had not dealt with on this subject for decades. It was like a bottleneck just kind of broke open. So that's what I mean when I say reckoning. And I think that that was so ubiquitous that it was spread out across society. And that's why we are seeing so many you know, books and essays and things at the moment, which include reckonings, because I think we all went through the pandemic and everyone kind of took a step back from life for a while and just kind of took stock of what was going on. And when we all kind of logged back in to life, we were just like, how is this still happening? Like, you know, I think we all had a chance to reflect and came back and were like, actually, no, we're going to start demanding that these things be fixed and so yeah the parliament faced its own reckoning last year so um you open the book with this very powerful account of your own reaction to something said by the prime minister by scott morrison um are you able to share this moment with us and was this the catalyst for you writing this book i think it was the catalyst for me realizing that this was going to be different uh, as a reporter, as a person, as a moment. Uh, it was the moment that Scott Morrison left an International Women's Day breakfast in the parliament and allegations that she had raised quite recently at that time about having been raped in Parliament House by a colleague. Now that of course is before the courts, so it's, it's allegations at this stage. Uh, but Scott Morrison didn't really handle it particularly well when Brittany Higgins went public with her story. He didn't really want to talk about it at all or, you know, address the issue. And uh, a couple of days later, he was basically forced to because it, it wouldn't go, it wasn't going away. And so he left this International Women's Day event and he told the media that he had spoken to his wife, Jenny Morrison, and she had put things into perspective for him. She had given him clarity, was his quote, and told him to think about what he would like done if it had been his own daughters. And so Scott Morrison said he now understood 
what needed to happen because he could think about it as a father uh, and he would move forward from there. And that just absolutely just knocked me sideways because uh, several reasons. I mean, the first one is why do we constantly have to wear another person's face in order to have people feel empathy for us as sexual violence survivors. I mean, I am a sexual violence survivor myself uh, and I constantly hear people say things like, oh, you know, I worry about my daughter or just like, oh, I just think about my daughter in that situation. And I understand that's a very human response, but at the same time, can we not just have a human response because something terrible has happened? Like, do we need to put another person's face there in order to understand that this is a terrible thing and we should all be acting on it? So there was that part of it. There's that real selected empathy that we tend to use in situations of sexual and gendered violence. And then there was also the point that Brittany Higgins herself raised quite recently, which was that no one was asking Scott Morrison to think about this as a father. They were asking him to think about it as a leader, as the prime minister. That's where his power lays in being in charge of the country, particularly being in charge of, you know, the government and, uh, having quite a lot of sway about what happens in Parliament House. So I just was absolutely knocked sideways that we had the leader of the country admitting that he had needed his wife to tell him to think about it in terms of his daughters before he knew how to act. And I felt so much rage just bubbling through me at that particular moment that I actually was unable to think. It kind of just broke me. and that's when I realized I wasn't going to be able to be an impartial voice in this, that experience counts. Uh, and that if I was going to cover this in a way that it deserved to be covered, I would need to bring my own human experience into the mix. So you write so beautifully, can I say. Um, I just, I loved reading the book. It was so visceral and articulate. I was right there with you reading it. When I was reading it, I was right there with you in those moments. Um, even while you're describing, as you say, some really uncomfortable topics, some really confronting topics. Um, so can you share what the, writing, what the writing experience was like? Did you have an audience in mind or was it just you getting it out? So a personal experience. Yeah, I think it was more me getting it out because I, I actually worried upon writing it whether anyone would read it or would want to read it, whether it actually was saying anything. It was our number one book, can I say, so people are reading it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so kind. Uh, it was, the writing process was quite uh, dif difficult because it took a lot out of me to, to go back to some of those places. Uh, so in terms of words on the page, they came out quite easily, but I would often find that I was crying as I was writing it. I would, you know, come out of the writing haze and uh, just realize that I'd been bawling as I'd been writing it. And I think that's because trauma never truly leaves you. It, it becomes part of who you are. And when you have to tap back in to those moments that you were broken and had to get rebuilt, uh, it does actually start to seep out of you. So I would come home from work where I was covering these issues uh, for The Guardian, which is my day job, 
and I would uh, just be in a bit of a haze and then would go and sit down, you know, or lay down in my bed and just write a chapter. So it came out quite quickly. It just uh, took a lot out of me at the same time. And uh, it didn't, um, I only gave it to a couple of people to read afterwards. And they were like, you, you need to get this published because I didn't even really have a publisher in mind when I'd started writing it. I just didn't even know if, if it was saying anything, as I said. So it was a, a cathartic experience, but it's also, uh, I find it very difficult to revisit the essay and to, to read it myself because it does put me straight back to where I was, uh, which is, you know, it's never too far away anyway, but I just look back at some of the things that happened last year and I just think, how, how did they get it so wrong for so many people? Yeah, so um, on that, yes, being, while I was reading it, I just, was thinking of all my own personal experiences and I'm sure most women will feel the same way. It, there were so many moments where I was going, yes, I can relate to that and yes, this happened to me. And That's been part of, of what's happened and part of what yeah. happened last year of why we've had such a national conversation because it's not a political issue, it is a human issue and we all know someone who has been impacted by this, if not, if not ourselves. Uh, and so we, we all can recognise, you know, at least parts of this subject in ourselves and the responses. And I think that's where that, I mean, I describe it as rage and I truly believe it is a righteous anger, but I think that's where it comes from because everywhere I was going, I was running into to people, mostly women, who were telling me their stories and they were doing it in a way where they felt liberated because they could be angry. Yeah about it and that's what i found to be really empowering because there were so many people who finally felt like they had permission to be angry over you know decades of this stuff happening and them just going enough and that was a real privilege i've been overhearing people more than you would previously i even while i was reading the book i was sitting in a cafe overhearing people talking about similar issues. So it is tapping into something at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but you mentioned the political aspect and you wrote in the book that this issue has always been political, right? Why do you think that is? Because really there's certain issues like violence against women, the environment, human rights, health, all these sorts of issues that I don't personally don't understand why they are political, why they aren't apolitical or bipartisan. So what are your views on, on that? I think when I said that it's always been political, I mean that we find it a really uncomfortable conversation in Australia in particular when we talk about anything to do with gender. Uh, and that includes, you know, anything from the gender pay gap to how many genders there are, to what we should be teaching children in school about gender, and then of course, gendered sexual violence. We have a huge problem with talking about this in Australia. And politicians don't like talking about things that people find uncomfortable because if they've chosen the wrong side, uh, then they might lose votes. And it seems absolutely insane that we're talking about votes when it comes to people's lives, but that's the reality of politics. And 
gendered sexual violence more so than any other crime always falls back to a he said, she said. If somebody's car gets broken into, we don't run into a he said, he said, or a they said, they said. We just investigate whether the car was broken into. If it was, we lay charges against the person who is assumed to have broken into the car and then it goes to a court. There's no, where did you park the car? Was the car open? Did you leave things out on the, on the seat? Like, did you actually tempt someone to break into your car or steal your car? We don't, we don't talk about any other crime in the same way that we talk about violence against women. And politicians know this and feel very uncomfortable. So everyone's on a unity ticket when it comes to protecting women. That's something that everybody wants to do. We want to protect women and we want to protect our vulnerable communities. But if something goes wrong or suddenly some, someone is popping up and saying, actually, no, uh, I was failed. I was not protected. I was attacked well, then you have to start looking at why they were attacked. And we don't want to talk about the perpetrators because, you know, they're often good men, you know, top blokes. So it becomes really uncomfortable. And so politicians just shy away from it because they know that Australian society will be shying away from it. If a person is in a domestic violence situation, and it is more often than not women who are the victims of domestic and family violence, uh, we often wonder why she didn't leave or why she you know, was with a man like that in the first place. We don't look at why he's attacking her we just look at why she's in that situation. When a woman is raped or sexually assaulted, we do the same thing. What was she wearing? You know, why was she there? Did she lead that person on? When a, a, a partner claims that they were assaulted or raped by their partner, we do the same thing. Are you sure you didn't consent? You know, like, oh, you're married. It's things like this that we're constantly just chip, chipping away, chipping away at women about why they were in that situation when they were hurt. Politicians don't want to talk about it because Australians don't want to talk about it. On that about Australia, I find it really curious, and I've asked this question <laughs> multiple times, why in Australia it took us so long for women to rise up in the same way that they did somewhere like the US, where they had the tipping point with Harvey Weinstein, and then they moved into the Me Too, the whole Me Too thing. But Australian women didn't really embrace it in the same way until Brittany Higgins and until that march on Canberra. It's a, it's a really interesting question, and I think quite a bit of it has to do with Australia's defamation laws. They're uh, a, lot, a lot scarier than they are in the United States. Uh, and so that's, that's a huge reason of why people don't want to come forward, because uh, if they do, they could find themselves getting sued and uh, not only getting sued, but losing the case, which is, you know, one of the impediments to coming forward. Uh, another one is that it's, it's exceptionally hard to get anyone charged with uh, a crime related to gendered violence in Australia. Uh, we know that there is underreporting of assaults to police, but then we also know that of those reports that are made to police, only about 10% of them are going to go to court, which is, you know, and by the time it gets to court, the chances of a successful 
uh, prosecution are, are very, very low. And there's a lot of people who wonder, why would I put myself through that as well? So that, that's another reason. And I think a third reason and a huge one is that Australian society isn't really ready for it. It's, it's the same, it's the same as I was talking about before about how it's such an uncomfortable conversation for Australian society. We don't like to think about it happening, but when it does, we like to get it off the conversation table as quickly as possible, like just push that discussion aside. And so every time we have a flashpoint on this issue, and it's usually when uh, a white woman has been murdered by her partner in some horrific way that is quite public, children are often involved. When that happens, we will have a week or so of vigils of headlines of politicians promising it will never happen again and we're going to hold these summits and we're going to like look into violence against women and we're going to increase funding and then we all move on and we're happy to move on because it's been a really uncomfortable conversation once you get once you get past the headlines into how many people were failed by the time they got to that point and so I think that's a huge reason of why we didn't uh, see any sort of reckoning in Australia uh, until, until quite recently. And it does have to be said, and I understand the irony of me saying this as a white woman, but once again, it has been, we've had this conversation centred again around white women talking about this, but it's not only white women that this impacts. It, is across the spectrum, it is across communities. And we have had women of color, indigenous women, women from minorities, women from religious groups talking and screaming and yelling about this for decades and we don't tend to act. And when we do act, there's a certain person that we allow to take up space in the conversation and they look like me. And so if I find it hard, to find, make the space to talk about this within Australia, I can't even imagine how difficult it is for anyone who doesn't look like me to get Australians interested enough to start acting on this conversation. And we really need to start thinking about why it is we're only allowing certain people to speak on this at the table. In the book, you also make a point um, that it's not a woman's issue. And it's not for women to solve the issue, which I thought was, was one, another one of those, oh, yes, moments for me. So, um, and then you talk about how we hear the statistics, we know them all, and you raise a really interesting idea that I'd never thought about, um, about switching those statistics from women over to men. And, oh, my God, that's so insightful. So can you share with our listeners what that idea is and how you think it would go towards changing the conversation? We, we do often speak against about violence against women as being a women's issue. Uh, and, you know, it, it's something that comes up every International Women's Day. It's something that we get women to lead when we're talking about the conversation. Uh, you know, even politicians will send out their women MPs to talk on this because it's a woman's issue. And I don't, I don't think it is a women's issue. Uh, I think that women have said and done enough on this they have jumped up and down, they've performed their trauma, they have screamed, they have done everything that they can possibly do 
to try and raise awareness and not just awareness to try and get action on this. Mm. But we, we leave out a huge part of this issue, which is the role of men. And the statistics say that it is mostly men, like overwhelmingly men who are attacking women when we're talking about gendered violence. And yet we never hear from the men. So we often hear from the survivors or we hear about, you know, what went wrong, but we don't hear about what led to that man feeling like he could take ownership over another person. We don't hear about that. We don't hear about those failures. We don't hear about why he thought he could just take agency over another human being. And so I do wonder whether it is because when we talk about the statistics, we will say one woman a week will be murdered by her partner or former partner in Australia. If we were to switch that up and say that one man a week will become a murderer in Australia, would that actually make a difference? If we would, instead of saying that one in three women will be raped or sexually assaulted by the time that they're 15, if we were to say that one in three men will become a rapist, will that actually change the conversation? Because we never actually seem to hear from that side. We hear men go, oh, it's really bad and we need to do more, but what actually are they doing? And I can guarantee you there would be people listening to this automatically getting defensive and thinking not all men. Of course, it's not all men. Nobody is saying it's not all men, but that doesn't mean that it's not some men. It's enough men. There's not one man in Australia running around raping women with impunity, and he is to blame for all of our statistics and for all of that trauma. Chances are it will be men that you know, because we all seem to know a victim of sexual assault or are one ourselves, but we don't seem to know any perpetrators. And I don't know how that's actually possible. It statistically is not possible that we all know someone who has been sexually assaulted, but we don't know anyone who would be a sexual assaulter. And so that's why I think we do need to maybe start changing how we talk about this issue to highlight the role of men and then start addressing what is happening there. Where are those failures coming in? What can we do to stop it at the start? So um, you, you've mentioned that you're um, a survivor and you describe quite graphically your own personal experiences in the book. And then later, you also talk about um, the first time you chose to publicly share your story and the reactions from your male colleagues and friends. So can you share what those reactions were and how it made you feel? So I actually uh, wrote about uh, my sexual assaults before the Brittany Higgins allegations went public. Uh, and that was because I'd had a conversation with a, a dear friend about, about rape. And he had said that they weren't men, that they were monsters who carried out these acts, which is a completely understandable point of view. We don't like to think that, you know, humans and people that we know are capable of this, but the, the men who were attacked me weren't monsters, they were just men. And I think there's a distancing that we can put in this, in this issue when we talk about them being monsters, not men. 
because if they're monsters, then we don't know them because nobody knows a monster. Nobody loves a monster. Nobody's friends with a monster. But chances are some of the people that you love and care about or who are in your daily life are capable of monstrous acts because the statistics and personal experiences tell us that you're more likely to be attacked by the person in your bed than the monster under your bed. I mean, I am actually an anomaly when it comes to sexual violence. I, both times I was grabbed off the street. That's actually not, you know, the common story when it comes to sexual violence in Australia. It's somebody that you know. And so I think we need to stop thinking about these people as monsters. We actually need to start thinking about them as being men, because until we do that, we're not going to have the true reckoning, which is where we start to address it as a society. But it was also interesting when I ran that piece, uh, because all of these people I knew through work uh, and, you know, part of my extended friendship group who'd had no idea that that had happened to me came out and were like, oh, we're so sorry. We, we just had no idea. And I remember thinking, well, it's not like you have rape survivor, you know, across your forehead once, once it's happened. It's not like we turn a different colour. And all of these people who were coming up to me and saying, oh, we, we didn't think about it. We didn't think that that would have, could have happened to you. Have no idea that there would be so many women around them that this has happened to and we just we just don't talk about it because we'll talk about it without our, with our girlfriends we might make a confession you know late one night uh or you know just kind of we just have to get it out or somebody confesses to us that they've been you know sexually harassed or abused or raped and then we come forward and go me too and 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 that's how it comes out but we don't tend to have these conversations with the men and that was also enlightening because i just was thinking like who do you think rape victims are they're they're all around you like you know we are part of your lives we don't just necessarily walk around with a flashing sign saying you know i have been through an exceptionally traumatic experience and it really opened my eyes to just how much women think about these issues but men don't so speaking of um the before and after of trauma you you talk about that in your book how once it's happened there's the before and then there's the after and you talk about um the Brittany Higgins um story coming out and the after in Canberra so can you tell us a little bit of what the experience was like in the press gallery once that story broke what the after was like it was really interesting because I think a lot of people in the press gallery were very uncomfortable with what we were covering. I mean, uh, politics is usually fairly dry and safe. And when I say safe, I just mean, you know, nobody's dying on our table when we do political reporting. Uh, you know, I've been a court reporter, I've been a police reporter, uh, and you, you come across some of the, the worst and most heartbreaking aspects of humanity when you're covering those issues. In politics, it's, you know, the contest of ideas. So you don't necessarily have to deal with uh, the traumatic parts of human nature. You're dealing with policy, you're dealing with politics, you're dealing with, you know, somebody's backstabbing somebody else, but you can kind of park it and go home and live your life. When this happened, 
you could not park it. It was, it was everywhere. It seeped into you. Uh, I, you know, was only getting a couple of hours sleep a night when I was, you know, reporting on it for those months because I could not turn my mind off. And it was really interesting watching the press gallery just as, as a, an example of, of human nature in a bubble, I suppose, because you could see those who got it either through personal experience, the personal experience of loved ones, or just having been around long enough to know that, yep, this is a moment, this is something that we have to do. You could see them and you knew you could identify them, those reporters, because of the drive that they had to keep asking the questions despite the deflections from politicians, to keep prosecuting and the arguments, to keep voices elevated that needed to be heard from uh, and to not allow any distractions. It was very, uh, it was a really focused time for those people in the gallery. And then you could see those who had never been in the after, who hadn't even considered what it was like living in the after, like so many people. And they didn't really want to talk about it. They didn't ask questions in the press conference. They would openly talk about how they just wanted the issue to move on because they were really uncomfortable with writing about it. They didn't know where they fit. Uh, they would try to talk about, you know, politics and they would get screamed down by their colleagues saying, this is not a political issue. This is, this is a human issue and we actually need to take it seriously. And you saw that with just how many, and it was mostly women, the senior women in the gallery, just lifted and they just took all of the junior women with them and they just gave them platforms and they went out and they said this is what is happening we actually need politicians to act here and the men kind of cleared the floor and i don't think we've really seen that before and there was a there was a great moment where aaron patrick from the australian financial review wrote this terrible column i thought it was terrible a terrible article basically just sort of saying like oh wow look at all these activist journalists all these women activist journalists and my boss catherine murphy ended up writing her own column in response to this just sort of saying like mate We've always been here. It's, it's like, we're your colleagues. We've been working with you this, you know, for years and years and years. And if you haven't noticed, then you haven't been paying attention that women share this space. And not only that, it's not activist journalism, it's journalism. It's an issue that deserves to be treated seriously and with respect. And that is how we're treating it. And it was just this real flashpoint where you just kind of saw mostly the women just stand up and go yes like we are we do deserve to have this space and it's again another argument for why we need diversity in our public spaces and in our platforms like this because we're so used to hearing white men talk about things that when we don't hear white men talk about things, when the, the floor is cleared and others' voices are rushing in to fill those gaps, it's an anomaly. It's, it's, a, it's a moment. And we absolutely need more diversity in places like the press gallery and in the Australian media. So we start to hear more of those truths that we tend to conveniently push to the side. On that note, unfortunately, we've reached our time. I still have lots of questions that I wish I could ask. Um, but 
for people listening, there is a lot of moments in this book where you just go, yes. So definitely, um, like your, your colleague was saying, yes, yes, we're here, we need to be heard. So you can read um, Amy's book uh, on Reckoning. It's available at Booktopia now. Thank you so much for joining us, Amy. Um, I wish we could, we had hours to sit. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much for having uh, having me and for anyone who was listening to this and you know has their own story um, we, we do see you and we do hear you and uh, we do believe you I, I know it's been a really tough year so make sure you've got your support networks around you thanks to Mandy Beaumont and Amy Remekis you can find links to all books discussed today in our show notes or head over to booktopia.com.au. Stay tuned on Friday for our next podcast where we'll be talking with Australian comedian and host of The Last Leg and Spicks and Specs, Adam Hills, discussing his new middle grade novel, Rockstar Detectives. As always, thanks for listening and never stop reading. <laughs>